The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to the Crime Scene. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you once again. And we have a fantastic guest with us today. He's been on our show many times. Most of the times we've talked, we've talked about paranormal stuff. But I dare say that we're actually talking about something that might be more frightening than paranormal stuff. And we're talking about serial killers. And we're talking to the great author, Richard Estep. Richard is the author of uh, 20 books, or I think it's probably over 20 books now, most of them in the field of the paranormal. And uh, also, he has kind of turned his attention to true crime as well with serial killers, the minds, methods, and mayhem of history's most notorious murders. And uh, we are so glad to have him with us today. Now, not only when he is writing, he is a true Renaissance man. He serves as a paramedic and... uh, you know, I just admire what he does because he's such a prolific author. And then when he's not doing that, he's saving lives. I mean, what a guy. Uh, so we're so glad to have him with us. The book is The Serial Killer Next Door, The Double Lives of Notorious Murderers. That is the new book. And we're so glad to have him with us today. Richard, welcome to the show. And how do you find time to do all of this? Hi, Jim. It's always a pleasure. So thanks for inviting me back. Like anything else, I think you get into a routine, you make a routine, it becomes a habit. Um, one of the ways I, I like to fulfill myself is to read and to write as much as possible. So never feels like a chore. Uh, it's a delight to do. So I make time to do writing every single day. Oh, that's great. I got to say, it's a great pair up because um, I love Visible Ink Press. They, I think they put out some of the best books out there on the topics we cover on these shows. And you being one of my favorite authors in these areas, I think it's a great uh, combination. So why did you decide to get a little bit into the true crime area? What, what's kind of led you in this direction? Well, as you mentioned, Jim, I, I was primarily known for being a paranormal author and Having done a few TV shows in that genre, you know, Haunted Hospitals being the one I think I'm best known for, having written, I think it's 30-something books on the subject right now. I'm embarrassed to have not got an exact number for you. But a couple of them intersected. There was that place on the Venn diagram where true crime and the paranormal came together. And a good example was I wrote a book um, about Fox Hollow Farm in Indiana, um, the home of the I-70 Strangler, her Baumeister. Um, That was an almost even split between the paranormal aspects of the case and the true crime aspects. Uh, I wrote a book about the Belisca Axe murders. I wrote a book about uh, John Wayne Gacy and uh, his alleged haunting of a movie theater in Illinois. So I found that the more true crime I did, the more fascinating it was to me. And I'd wanted to work with the Dublin Press for a while. I'd, I'd heard great things about them. They are a terrific publisher to work with. So I approached them and said, uh, here's what I know for. I'd like to do some things beyond ghosts, UFOs, the paranormal, uh, what would you like to do? And so we settled on uh, my first book on serial killers. That did well enough. I think it's into its third reprint now uh, that they asked for a sequel, which was the serial killer next door, of course, that we have here. And as we speak, or at least once we're finished recording, I'll get back to my current project to them, which is a third book uh, in the same sort of vein. It's a similar but different. A concept that you explored in this particular book that is particularly chilling to me, this idea of serial killers next door. 
people that seem maybe as normal as you and I, but they live a whole other double life. Is that common for most serial killers? Do most serial killers live a double life? Well, there tend to be two kind of stereotypical types of serial killer that we're familiar with, aren't they, Jim? There is, the, on the one hand, you've got the Jeffrey Dahmer, who quite obviously people would look at him and say, there is something wrong with this man. Um, he, is, he is not by any stretch of the imagination a well-adjusted, normal functioning member of society in appearance. Um, he was very much living on the outer fringes. And then you look at uh, the more charming types like Ted Bundy that did fit in very well uh, and were able to keep that mask, that veneer going for longer. So I focused in this second book on those that were able to maintain um, more of an outward facade, um, hold down a job, or even in some cases a career. One of the serial killers we talk about in this book was a high-ranking pilot in the Canadian Air Force. He'd flown the Queen of England, which fits something that, you know, you would never believe uh, a killer would do. So I was fascinated after writing that first book on how, how they went about pulling the wool over the eyes of so many people hiding in plain sight. So it's more common than we would like to think. When you were selecting them, what were the criteria? One being that they did a good job of hitting, hiding what they did and led these double lives. What were the other criteria used to pick these uh, different killers? One was that um, I looked at those that were professionals in nature. So a scary number of nurses, uh, physicians, uh, at least one paramedic, which kind of struck close to home for me, of course. We looked at people that were holding down careers, you know, that were professionals or that were prominent members of their community in some cases, you know, well-known. Um, everybody in town knew this person. A, a good example of that was Robert Picton, the, the Canadian pig farmer. You know, his farm was uh, very well known. Um, nobody was, sh nobody's aware though, that this guy was not only murdering people, but then feeding them to his pigs. Okay. So people that were prominent in one aspect or another. So now was part of the fun of this, I guess you use that word fun, the kick, the rush for this is the fact that these serial killers could lead this double life that ad added a little extra spice to the killing the fact, and again, I hate to talk about this uh, flippantly because, again, these are real people that met their demise due to these monsters. But, I mean, was that part of the appeal that, boy, I can play like I'm this great person nine to five and then, you know, later on fool everybody and do the worst possible thing a human can do? I think in some cases that was, that was true. There were those that really enjoyed that backhanded uh, you know, I'm getting away with it in plain sight. But there were others, I think, that it was incidental to them. I mean, one that I looked at was Stephen Port, um, who was known as the grinder killer or the dating app killer. Um, this was a man who met his victims, you know, over, over uh, dating apps for gay men. Um, and he was a, a chef, a cook for a living. I don't think he particularly took great pleasure in, in the whole aspect of, how can I put this uh, in a, in a non- in a more sensitive way. I don't think that was part of the allure for killers like him. Um, Port was very lazy. In fact, he, he dumped the bodies of his victims, sometimes literally on his own doorstep, huh. you know? Uh, so some of them, I think, were more organized, more capable, and planned better than others. Um, some were just spur-of-the-moment opportunists. I see this person in front of me. Uh, I think I can get away with this, and I'm going for it. Whereas others were meticulous planners. 
and would set out to abduct people, prepare a space and all that. One of the scariest is Israel Keys. I mean, basically killing people at random. Can you talk about him a little bit? Because that, that was one of the most chilling ones I've ever heard of. I mean, just went around and, and very meticulously planned, I mean, in terms of how he would bury them, put them in different places and things. Can you talk about him a little bit? Because he was terrifying. Yeah, I think one of the, perhaps the most terrifying thing about Israel Keys was the sheer randomness with which he chose his victims. He did not target someone because he was attracted to them, because uh, he had a grudge against them, because of any other factor than they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he had traveled around leaving murder and kidnap kits in remote locations that he could then dig up. And he would go to one of these areas and pick a target of opportunity, pick an individual that he could um, uh, murder. Uh, and that, I think, is even more terrifying than the idea that you could be targeted because you crossed somebody, you know, you did the, in their right. eyes, at least you'd done something to them. These poor people literally never saw it coming. They had no reason to suspect they were in danger, the wrong place at the wrong time. And the sheer randomness of it is horrifying, I think. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned the planning and I meant what I meant was not the planning of the victims because that was totally random, but the, the way he would have these murder kits and he would have all the rope and all these different things ready in a place. The places were planned, but the people weren't planned. And I guess, and it, it seems counterintuitive. I mean, if you're dead, you're dead and murder is bad. Let, let's be very clear on that. But the thought that if, if you're the target of someone who knows you, because they say most murder happens between people who know each other, but it's even scarier. You know, you could go out, and you happen to pick that time of night to go get a loaf of bread and you come into the sights of an Israel Keys who's looking for a victim and you are the, the victim of opportunity. That in some ways is even more frightening because it could happen to anybody, anytime, and for no reason other than you were there. It's the equivalent of, of, of a bear attack, you know, or, or a tornado landing with no warning. Um, and yeah, again, but the sheer randomness of it is terrifying. You are absolutely right. In fact, the book that I just finished writing for Visible Inc., which will be out later this year, covers the fact that most people are far more likely to be murdered by someone they know, uh, most often a member of their own family. But Keys, I think, prepped everything. What mattered to him was the process and the result, but not the identity of the victim. He did not care, I think, who it was that he killed. He cared that he killed. That's going to seem like a callous question. But in this book and the other books that you have covered, who, I mean, there's no good serial killer. Let's get that. They're all evil, whether that's due to mental illness, whether that's just because they were evil or whatever the reason. I'm not saying they're good serial killers. Who do you think the most heinous, though, that you've ever covered? It could be someone in this book. It could be someone in one of your other books, one you haven't covered yet. In your research, who is the most heinous serial killer? Your view. That is a very, very difficult question. Um, I'm always tempted when I'm asked that question or when I ponder it, I'm always tempted to default to those that killed children. I'm thinking specifically right now of the Moore's murderers, uh, Ian Brady and Myra Hinley, because not only did they abuse and murder children, you would think that it could not get worse than that, you know, torturing, abusing, and then killing children. That should be the lowest point. But um, 
the mother of one of those poor, poor children, um, never found her son's body. And to this day, it is still buried out there somewhere on Sabbathworth oh. in England. And Ian Brady strung the family along for decades, refused to give them the closure of saying where their, their son's remains were. Uh, and there were stories of, of his mother, uh, the victim's mother going out onto the moor and just digging randomly on weekends, just desperately trying to find her son. So I think it's, it's those killers that it doesn't end with the death. The cruelty continues by holding something over people who have already suffered so much at their hands. Those are the ones that I think are the absolute worst. Oh, that's just terrible. That's just terrible. Um, you cover so many of them here. This is such a, I mean, if you're interested in true crime and the subject of serial killers, this is certainly a book to get. Now, one case that was luckily solved, I think largely because of, uh, I believe, uh, citizen detectives, uh, the Golden State Killer. Can you talk to us about that case and, and what you thought about uh, the case of Joseph James D'Angelo? So D'Angelo, again, I picked um, some professionals. D'Angelo was a law enforcement officer, uh, and he used that position to commit his murders uh, and to get away with it. So I think what, what drew me to this particular case was not only was he hiding in plain sight, but he had the authority. He was one of the people in society that we are supposed to trust and respect the most. And we're all aware right now that law enforcement is controversial. Uh, it's a very difficult time to be a police officer in the U.S. and to be policed in the U.S. You know, we have big problems and we all know it. Um, but certainly during the, the era when he was um, killing people, uh, police officers were a little bit more trusted and respected than they are today. And um, he used that to his maximal advantage. Uh, he used the uniform. He used the badge um, in order to, to carry out murders. So, um, a clear example of, uh, of somebody who leveraged their profession in order to kill. What are your thoughts? I mentioned citizen detectives. What are your thoughts on citizen detectives? Because I look at a case, uh, like that, um, we just did a show at the beginning of January with Edward Humes about a DNA case up in Washington state that had not been solved since the late 80s. And thanks to, I believe it's Cece Moore, I think is her name, if I'm remembering correctly, who has developed this DNA technique, who was just a person. She wasn't a law enforcement officer. In fact, I think she was a former model. And she developed this technique to cross-reference DNA with genealogical databases and so forth, and basically figured out a case in three or four hours with her laptop that, law enforcement couldn't figure out for 40 years almost or yeah 40 years on the other hand you get people on internet boards like calling out living people as suspects you know kind of prosecuting them over the internet and that's kind of like slander and libel to me so i mean i can see both sides of it what do you think about citizen detectives and and what we've seen on the internet with regular folks trying to solve crimes I think that for many of those individuals, their heart is in the right place. Um, they see, they perceive an opportunity to try and help in a situation where law enforcement may appear not to be making progress. Uh, and there are definitely cases in which citizens, citizen detectives have contributed positively, but we also have to, you pointed this out just now, it was a great point. You know, there is a continuum, there is a spectrum. 
it's not as though you can go become a, a qualified citizen detective, right? So the internet is full of people with opinions. Many of those people are very loud with those opinions. And I think where we start to see problems is that law enforcement with a, an official investigation has to chase down or at least filter uh, an almost overwhelming quantity of leads. And so when you have all these theories that are sometimes muddying the waters, it saps police personnel time chasing down all of them, seeing if there is any validity to some of these cases. So I think it's, it's very much a double-edged sword, Jim. How much time do detectives waste following dead ends and, and false leads submitted by someone who's well-meaning and has a hypothesis, which turns out to ultimately not be correct? But then again, there is the possibility, you know, you have those people that do break a case and also can keep a case alive often decades after it was it became a cold case and was effectively abandoned. Yeah, to me, it's kind of like I would think that the key is to use common sense and courtesy and realize. I, I think the tough thing about true crime, and I struggle with it doing these shows, uh, I'd done this show back in 2011, and we're almost to maybe by the time this airs, we'll be up to 200 episodes, but I stopped doing it for a while. Because you're dealing with real people and real hurt. Um, not that those things can't be associated with the paranormal. They can. Uh, but I was just very leery. And it, it caused me, one of the factors, not the only one, but one of the factors that for a while stopped me from doing this show, just a, a concern. And being a person who is a paramedic, I mean, obviously you care for people. How do you deal with that kind of dichotomy a of just seeing immersing yourself in these horrible cases and also realizing we're talking about real people and real victims when we talk about true crime how does that work for you and how do you cope with that because it is something i think ethical people struggle with when they cover this topic i think much comes down to intent jim many of the stories that i've written about are very difficult uh to research the, the reports that i read the police reports the coroner's reports the testimony that I read, the court transcripts, um, the interviews, the stuff that's in the public domain. It's, it's just appalling to read what, what these people do to, to human beings, you know, to, and I, I very deliberately don't say to their fellow human beings because many of them, I think, are, are subhuman. If you have the ability to do this to another living creature, um, there is something deeply fundamentally wrong with you. I'm not somebody that would ever write a book. That, that glorifies these individuals. You know, I, I think it's, it's dreadful that we live in a world where you can buy um, a T-shirt with John Wayne Gacy or Richard Ramirez's face on it, you know? So th there is this glorification, almost the rock starification of some of these individuals, which gives me great concern. But the alternative is you leave their story untold. The fine line I have to walk when I write these books is that you want to include enough detail without it being lascivious, you know? Right. So I am going to write a book, and, and as you know, because you've read this one, um, I will write that a killer stabbed somebody 17 times, primarily in the neck, torso, and abdomen. I won't write that they plunged the blade into the chest and yanked it out, spraying blood across the room, drenching them. You, do you see what I mean? Um, so the yeah. approach is, is key here. Um, at least in my opinion, I work very, very hard to not write lascivious material. I don't want to cash in on somebody else's grief and misery. And you know, it did it. It didn't hit me personally. 
Um, when the first serial killer book came out, I'd written about the Aurora movie theater shooting, the Batman Dark Knight Rises movie theater shooting, which I'd been um, peripherally involved with. And two hours after I did a radio interview about that, I was at an actual mass shooting myself working as a paramedic. Oh, my Lord. So I, I was very, very careful when I wrote that section of the book, which really covers spree killers that it would be something that if I were involved with it, I would be okay seeing it in print in this particular way. I hope that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, you know, I look back at that chapter of the first book and stand behind it. And I've, I've looked at least one of these people in the eye directly. So it's not something I take lightly. It would absolutely break my heart if I thought that these books were causing pain to the family members and loved ones of, of the victims. And I know that that's becoming an issue. We've seen controversy with certain TV shows uh, right now, which have been accused of doing exactly that. Well, we're having a fascinating conversation with Richard Destep. The book is The Serial Killer Next Door, The Double Lives of Notorious Murderers. And we'll be back right after this. We're back on the crime scene, and we are with Richard Estep. Uh, his most recent true crime book is The Serial Killer Next Door, The Double Lives of Notorious Murderers. Now, this next one is something that you can really speak to in, in many ways. But if I think about, you know, you talked about police and how, at least in the past, they were very trusted and respected. So that, for the example, the Golden State Killer was able to use that to his advantage to victimize uh, folks and kill folks, unfortunately. But even more vulnerable is when you're lying in a hospital bed and your nurse or your doctor is coming in to, quote, help you. And if that person has nefarious aims, my goodness, you're never more vulnerable than that. I think about somebody like, uh, I think I was a real little kid, but I remember hearing his name, Swango, Michael Swango, and you cover him in the book. Can you talk about Swango and some of the other medical murderers? Because really, it's one of the most heinous things that I could possibly think of. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Swango was one that uh, I took great offense to personally because, of course, he, he was a paramedic, which is my chosen uh, vocation. Swango was somebody that uh, murdered by poisoning. And there were many signs looking at his early um, career in emergency medicine. He poisoned um, snacks at his ambulance station and got an entire crew sick. So this is a guy that uh, already was deeply flawed, essentially faked his way um, through med school, um, was, was on the road to becoming a doctor. If he just used his powers for good, I know many paramedics that have gone on to become excellent physicians, but Swango stepped up from paramedic to becoming a physician. And um, this personality, this pathologic personality that began to rear its head with him, he, I think, very much enjoyed having the power of life and death over patients. Now, in reality, medical providers, um, medical professionals, when they do have the power of life and death, um, it's down to the fact that they are trained to save as many lives as possible. They're trained to cure and to heal. There are deaths, of course. Deaths happen in the medical system through mistakes, um, uh, drug mistakes, medication errors. They happen through procedural errors and things of that nature. But when, the, when it's intentional, 
it is, I think, one of the greatest betrayals that we can see in our society. Um, coming from the UK, as I do, uh, people will often ask, well, who is the, who is the most, I, I really don't like questions about, you know, rank serial killers in terms of the number of victims they've killed. Right. But undeniably, um, Harold Shipman, Dr. Harold Shipman, uh, is Britain's, if not the world's, um, uh, most prolific serial killer. He killed hundreds. He was a small town physician who murdered um, primarily geriatric patients, old folks, vulnerable oh. old people with large overdoses of morphine. And he would come to their home, to their bedside, and he was loved in his community. Everyone loved Dr. Shipman. You know, he was kind, he was caring, unless you worked with him, in which case he had a reputation as being an absolutely irascible, horrible man to work with. But his patients loved him and he was killing them by the hundreds. So those that abuse their positions of responsibility in order to kill are, are just some of the worst of the worst. Absolutely. Another category of people that aren't usually suspected of being serial killers are females. I mean, typically, uh, when we think of a serial killer, we think of a man, you know, in his 20s, 30s, 40s. Uh, we kind of, I think, have this mental profile of what a serial killer looks like. And I think most people let their guard down in that regard uh, when they're around uh, a woman. And you covered quite a few female serial killers in this book, didn't you? Yeah, there, there is a myth that there are almost no female serial killers. Now, I think that derives from the fact that the vast majority of serial killers are males. Um, but there certainly is no shortage of, of female serial murderers. Also, books have been written, entire books have been written purely focusing on uh, female serial killers. Uh, I'd written about Eileen Wernos, who I would think, I suspect, is the best known, um, not least because Charlize Theron played her in the movie Monster. And so, you know, there was a lot of publicity attached to that. But yes, they are, they are definitely um, out there. Um, I do think also that. The, the incidence of serial killers in general is increasing. That's, that's undeniable. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And I think partly it's because of the fact that we have this explosion of interest in them in the popular media and culture. Uh, you cannot turn on a streaming service or any TV channel without seeing a documentary, eight-part documentary series about whichever killer you care to name. It's becoming more and more of a subject of fascination. And I think, or I suspect, this I have no evidence for, but I suspect that more than a few individuals um, who have the makings of being one of these people have perhaps been pushed that way with ready access to you know all of this information on them. Now, let me ask you this, because I recently interviewed an author about John Wayne Gacy, and I asked him the question, could Gacy get away with what he did for as long as he did today. And this gentleman said, absolutely not. Couldn't happen. But you're saying that you feel there are more serial killers. So is it, do you think it's a kind of myth that with DNA and closed circuit television and everybody having a high def recording device in their hand and all these different things and more awareness, you still think there's more serial killing going on now than say, in Gacy's time 40 years ago? I think more, that's not what I think, Jim. I think there are more individuals doing it, but I think detection okay. has increased it as well. So we're seeing a rise in both. I mean, we all have a device on us that tracks our movements 24-7, right? I look at a number of contemporary cases in which 
victims' locations were. Their last location was pinged to a cell phone tower, um, which was close to the site of their abduction or the killer's loc- you know, home. So, um, as you said, there are more high-def cameras around. We are the average American, the average Briton, the average Westerner. We are on camera more times a day than at any other point in human history. So our movements are more easily definable. They're more easily trackable. And so it's easier for a serial killer to get caught than it ever has been before. But and to your point, that doesn't mean you have you don't have more people trying, which is horrible to think. It's, it's just a horrible to th- thing to think. Why do you think people become serial killers? Do you think there's an element? And I think we've discussed this when you've been on the shows before talking about this subject. But do you think that there's an element of true evil? Do you think it's merely mental illness? Or do you think it's some kind of cocktail of the two? I think there is an element of nature and nurture to this, Jim, which is, it is what I said last time. I really haven't changed my opinion on that. However, I would also say that we are seeing the media in general um, bombard pretty much everybody around the clock. The 24-hour news cycle, constantly having a phone in front of our faces, social media feeds, you know, people going to the bathroom and checking their phones. So I think that we see some personalities that are perhaps pathological in nature that 50 years ago wouldn't have received the stimulus to go out and kill are now suddenly confronted with it everywhere. You can go onto a, uh, an ebook site and you can download 100 ebooks on serial killing. Uh, you can go onto YouTube and you can watch millions of hours of content. And if you become fascinated and you have that kind of personality to begin with, you have the makings you know, of that storm that ends up uh, with, with somebody killing. I've always believed, talking about Gacy, most of what the man said was, was, I think, garbage. He was obviously a pathological liar. But his first victim, he always claimed was an accidental killing on his part, and I believe him. I absolutely do. But I think he had that first incident and then realized he not only could get away with murder, but that it was an immense thrill for him. And uh, that's what set these wheels in motion. Well, I think that thrill, if you will, is being set in front of more people now than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Interesting. Very interesting. I did want to ask you, you mentioned early in the interview, you talked about the killer pilot. Uh, And I always thought that was an interesting case because, again, it's another one of those categories where I think we almost, I know I do, uh, of course, I'm of a certain age, but like when I get on a plane, it's like, I feel like saluting. It's like, oh, it's the captain, it's the pilot, and particularly doubly so with somebody in the military. Can you talk about this killer pilot? Because again, he would fall in that category of like, oh, nobody like that would ever be a serial killer. Well, and Colonel Russell Williams um, was, we have this idea, don't we? Of a, I know it's an old-fashioned notion, an officer and a gentleman. And of course, to be clear, when I use the word gentleman, we have um, female officers who are every bit as highly qualified as their male counterparts. Sure. But we have this notion, what I'm trying to say is, of you're an officer, you're a person of honor. You know, you live by this honorable code. You live to defend society. You write a blank check when you are commissioned to risk your life and dedicate your life to the protection of civilians. So the idea that somebody who does that will then turn around and murder it really is very, very jarring indeed. And again, what, what fascinated me about it was 
when you are flying jets, when you are doing this kind of high-level work for the military, there are usually psychological evaluations, as there are for many jobs in the military that are of extremely high consequence, you know? They don't let you fly the Queen of England if you're any old Joe or Jane. So the idea that, that he was able to hide this to such a degree that it wasn't picked up by any screening process fascinated and horrified me in equal measure. And this, I'm going to, I'm going to show my age once again, um, by throwing this out there, you know, back in the day, you didn't meet someone on apps, right? There were no apps. There were no smartphones. Now it's extremely common. I would say from what I understand from the young folks, it's more common than just meeting people the old fashioned way. And I think about all the ways we've gotten more sophisticated. Don't get in cars with strangers, park in well-lit areas, all these things that we do to be safe, right? Because we've heard about all the horrible killers out there and, uh, and you know, other crimes other than just murder, but just horrible things that people do. And I think overall people have gotten a lot smarter. But then people think nothing of opening up their phone picking out a profile of somebody who looks good and then meeting with a total stranger. And that has come into play in some of these cases. I mean, my daughters at this point, uh, at least as far as I know, do not use those apps. I'm really glad they don't. And again, I'm not casting aspersions or victim blaming to anybody who does use them or has been a victim of somebody who has preyed on people looking for relationships online. But it just seems to me like something that is fraught with danger can you talk about some of the cases that involved that and your, your thoughts on the, the whole situation? Yes, certainly. I mean, Stephen Port, who we've already briefly discussed, is, is the obvious one for me. Um, he, he used um, these social hookup apps to connect with vulnerable young men. Um, and I think it's not just the apps, Jim, either, to cast a broader net on the same, along the same lines. If you look at the sheer amount of information that's out there, about almost anybody, if you have a social media presence, it's downright terrifying that people could track you, could stalk you. You know, um, all it takes is that one inadvertent picture, one um, piece of video footage that identifies your home or, or things of that nature. I know that the police regularly run campaigns saying, if you're going on holiday, maybe don't announce it on Facebook. Right. Because it basically puts up a flag saying, come burgle me and take all my stuff. Murder as a consequence of that kind of thing. I now no longer uh, personally um, post that I will be traveling on, you know, to go do something alone just because I don't want my home and my family to be vulnerable. So we live in a realm in, uh, in a day and age in which privacy is a thing of the past. Uh, we can only control to a certain degree how much information is out there about us and how much isn't. And it has definitely made it easier for the nefarious to um, stalk victims. On the flip side, I do think there are cases in which uh, social media apps, things of that nature, have also brought the case to a swift conclusion, you know, or a swifter conclusion that detectives have been able to go through contacts, through instant messages and things of that nature, and identify perpetrators and suspects uh, more swiftly. Yeah, it's so interesting because the internet and everything that surrounds it is such a double-edged sword because, you know, I know people who think, oh, the internet is terrible, it's evil, it's the scourge, and so is social media. My wife really does not like social media. And I'm like, 
yeah, it's horrible in some ways and it's fantastic in others. It's kind of like you can, you know, you can write a beautiful book or you can write a book full of hate. It's just how it is applied and in like most things, how it is used. It's it's absolutely a double-edged sword, but then so is the internal combustion engine, you know? So is almost any tool that you care to name can be used for good or for ill. It's all about the hand that wields it and the intent behind it. Well, speaking of books uh, and interesting books, uh, a very interesting one is The Serial Killer Next Door, The Double Lives of Notorious Murderers by Richard Estep. Richard, uh, where can people find this book and where can they find everything that you do? Because you're prolific and if people are interested in true crime and the paranormal, you definitely have earned uh, multiple spots on their bookshelves. Thank you. Uh, you can find my books at the usual retail outlets, brick and mortar bookstores or online retailers. You can come visit me online at richardestep.net. That's my internet home and presence. Uh, you can find me on the Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. And um, on TV, you can catch my work on shows on Discovery Plus, uh, shows like Haunted Hospitals, Paranormal 911. Excellent. Richard Estep, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jim. A, a real pleasure. And thank you for joining us on Crime Scene. We appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this show, please send a link to your friend. Even in this player you're listening right now, you can text a link. That would be a lot of help. We would appreciate it. Also, rate and review where you can. But most importantly, and I'm sure Richard would agree, be careful out there. Bye-bye, everybody.